Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Jean Chalaby about his new book, The Format Age. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Jean Chalaby, who is a professor of international communication in the Department of Sociology at City University of London. And we're going to be talking about his new book, The Format Age, Television's Entertainment Revolution, which is published by Polity Press. So welcome to the podcast. Well, Dave, thank you very much for having me. Um, this this is a fascinating book. Uh, I think I, I said to you earlier, it's made me think again about how I watch television, where the kind of things I'm watching on television have come from, and also introduces um, or perhaps reintroduces um, a different theoretical framework for understanding TV. So we're going to talk about all of that. But before we do, it'd be really interesting to hear a bit about your kind of general interests and where this book came from and how it connects to the work you've been you've been doing in uh, communication studies? Yeah, my previous book was on, on international channels in, in, in Europe and worldwide, so in entertainment primarily. I did touch on news. Uh, so I've done a lot of work on channels like Discovery, Disney, MTV. I thought that would be a continuation of this work towards more understanding in depth of the structure of global flows in, in, in the contemporary world. I guess the, the kind of the really obvious thing to ask about the book is what is a TV format? <laughs> like, what, yeah. what are we actually talking about? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a very good question. There's many things in the TV format. The, the first thing in the TV format is the right to do a remake of a show in another territory. So it's at the first level is what it is. It's not, it becomes what you do with a format. It becomes an adapted version in another territory of an existing show. So that's what it is. But it also many things. It's it's also a, a proof of concept, because practically broadcasters acquire a license for a format because the format has been successful elsewhere. So if you acquire I don't know, a talent competition like Strictly Come Dancing, it will come with huge um, Bible ratings and tells you how it has performed in which territories, with which audience, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a proof of concept, and why it's very successful in the industry, because broadcasters use this to de-risk, as they call it, so it's like de-risk a schedule. So they know it comes to the proof of concept. But it's also a, a, a recipe, and that's a very common definition, whereby you have a kind of cake recipe, and you can mix it with local ingredients. So the recipe is kind of, global, that's what you have to do, you have to show these rules uh, and follow these rules and then you can add the local ingredients, so you get a local element and a global aspect, this is why people call it a hybrid or transnational. My favourite definition of a format is kind of, is engineered drama, it's guaranteed drama, so you, you invent, it's like a sport, it's like football, you, you have, in, in a football game everything is set, 
the, the rules, the team, the number of players, the duration, the, the size of the pitch, everything, the rights are sold three years in advance. And of course, the fans come, it's guaranteed, you, could, you, set, you set the drama. And, and uh, you've got the rules, maybe the offside rule to make it more exciting. So everything is engineered drama. And a format is exactly the same. Uh, you, you make up rules to engineer drama. So it's kind of managed unpredictability. You make something exciting and predictable within, but you, it's, it's managed. So they gave an example of uh, maybe, uh, you know, wife swap, for instance. If you, if you invite, uh, you know, a spouse with no, no kids and a spouse with five kids, just before the ad break, you guarantee tears or drama. You guarantee this. So basically, it's having drama, but making sure the cameras are here. And that's probably the best definition of a format. It's like a sports, really. And you, you engineer drama. It's make sure, with, quite often with real people, if it, you have no script. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, rumors about how scripted are reality TV shows. And some are a bit scripted, mostly the relationship shows, like maybe the, the dating shows, but reality is then not to be scripted, so they don't have the time. And we just invite exciting people. You have a nice precinct where you sure you take people out of the comfort zone, maybe a dinner party or a hospital or something like this. And or school, and then you got drama naturally. But you just have to make sure that you, the cameras are rolling. There's no doubt as well, above and beyond those three definitions, that, that they're big business. You know, there's there's a lot of money to be made, and I think that is one of the the reasons that you've got a very particular theoretical framework in the book. I guess one way of thinking about understanding television would be through a kind of cultural or media studies lens. You know, thinking about the content or uh, maybe reception by the audience, but you do something quite different. You're interested in, I guess, the kind of political economy of format trading. And, I mean, just kind of, you know, picking out a couple of things, um, global value chains, world systems theory, the NL school, you know, there's a kind of uh, whole range of different theoretical starting yeah. points. And I think to pick up on one of those would be really interesting. Why is it that you think the kind of the global value chain is that's the kind of, you know, the key way to explain yeah. mm-hmm. both, you know, the kind of, the rise of the format, but also why the format is such big business? That's a good question. I'm going to start with the, the, the theory bit a little bit. I've always been interested in, I'm going to say something personal, I always loved the Annan School mm-hmm. for two reasons. Here, I think it's a French school that started in 1920s, 1930s. As a historian, I always like history. It's always, history is always important to look at. It always tells you something of the present and, in fact, the future. And what I like about, about this, this tradition is they're very humble. You know, it's this, for me, that's very disposition of humility. Let's look at the data. Let's do a real research project. And that's what I try to do here, looking at data, what, what the data tells us, and look into the details. So there's a lot of interviews. You know, I've got 70, 80 interviews here. And really listen to what the story People tell you, don't go there with, you know, with a political view or with, with a kind of, you know, an a priori that can be a little bit. Uh, so for me, it's a way of telling a nice story. It's not my story, what I believe, you know, but it's, it's driven by data. And also you look into details and small things. And if you add all these details together, you can tell a beautiful story. One of the, I mean, the, 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 the annual books from Brodel or Fair, Martin are absolutely beautiful. The invention of the book is probably one of the best books ever written in media and communication. It's how the, the printing was invented and the impact of printing 
on civilization. But they made it very clear to even Martin Lefebvre that really the book was a commodity. Printers were having printing workshops in, in Paris and then Oxford and Cambridge, London, to make money. So there's this combination of social change on a massive scale, but small workshops of two, three men trying to make ends meet by printing pamphlets or whatever they could put their hand on. I love this, you know, this a story. It's not the kings and queens of the world. It's, it's the story made in Holborn, in, you know, the small, in, in Fleet Street, you know. I love this. So that's what I love this. And um, an old school round of one of the uh, disciples of Brodel was uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein. I had come a concept in the mid-1980s of commodity chain, global commodity chain. He wanted to demonstrate that capitalism started in the 16th century. And to do this, he did, he constructed two chains. One was the wheat chain, and the other one was the uh, naval boats, both the Dutch boats, trading boats. And he says there was his boats, material all over the world, and so on and so forth, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. And Emmanuel, Emmanuel Wallenstein, his idea of a global commodity chain, was picked up by a guy, a few people, but mostly Gary Gareffi, who is now at Duke University, who has been working on this for decades now, and they came up with the concept of global value chain. And global value chain, thought, is absolutely ideally adapted to, uh, to this uh, format business. I think maybe one of the first studies in media studies that use this theoretical framework. And the global value chain, basically, you look at different value-adding sequences in the production of a commodity, which can be a laptop, a car, uh, a book, or a TV show. Now, you look at the different uh, value-adding uh, sequences. And in the in case of TV format, it's very clear that what happened, mostly in the US, but very clearly in the UK, is the emergence of the TV production sector. As companies that, like RDF at the time, Action Time, uh, what was some uh, remarkable, uh, Bazal, uh, all these companies were specialized in creating TV shows. And they were selling this primarily to, to Channel 4 and progressively a bit more to the other uh, public broadcasters, BBC and ITV. And they had this IP, this intellectual property, these shows in the UK, and they started thinking, well, what can we do with this? We might be able to adapt it to, to, to other markets. That's how it started. So really the TV format... The history of TV format is the history of a production segments within uh, the TV industry, and it is particularly prominent in this country, uh, which is the, uh, the, the the production companies. It, it, it's interesting because the first two chapters chart, I guess, you know, part of that change where formats were essentially kind of game shows, and predominantly the kind of American game shows imported uh, across the Atlantic, and then this wouldn't really be a kind of a global content market at, at this point. But by the 1990s, you, you talk about how that's formed. So I wonder if you could say a bit about the formation of a, of a global market for content in, in the 1990s. Yeah. Now, that's a very interesting question. I mean, yeah, it was a very restrictive market. Most, I mean, you have to say up to the 1980s, in, in Europe, you had only few broadcasters, many were public, sometimes you didn't have daytime television, uh, breakfast television was not invented. There was very little competition. They, uh, the, uh, public service broadcasters were integrated. 
as well. Uh, so you had little incentives to import TV formats, which mostly game shows not very well perceived by the local authorities. And stuff like this. The audience liked them, but you know, it was. And the, the first format was basically the one-way flow of communication from the from the states to the UK and and Western Europe mostly. I think Eastern Europe had its own little uh, network. And you know, the classics were Wheel of Fortune, Price is Right, Blockbusters, uh, dating games, was Blind Gate. It always has been very important. But it was a, it was more. It was really uh, restricted to game shows. You have a few scripted formats coming from the UK to the US. That's a slightly different story. Maybe we can touch on this later on. But basically, mostly game shows. I mean, it all changed in the 1990s. Uh, it's very complex. I think the, the first one I can see is an emergence of TV producers, companies that specialize in selling IP and therefore interested in, in sweating every drop of this IP in every possible right on every possible platform. And that was very prominent in the, in the, in the UK as well in Holland uh, to a lesser extent in other European markets. And they started exporting this to uh, markets which were becoming ahead also an explosion of broadcasters in the new emerging markets, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, maybe later on the Middle East, where you had local local broadcasters. As they started importing cheap contents, but as far as I can take you, audience prefer local content, but you know how to. And this is where the format trade stepped in, saying, well, you know, you want local content, here's a recipe. Uh, you give us seven, eight percent. You pay us a license fee of seven to eight percent, and we tell you exactly how to do it and how to do a little daytime or game show or something like this. That is very good. So that's what happened. I mean, in a more developed market, it became more competitive in the states. The states started to open up a little bit with the British format, which is like selling coal to Newcastle. Uh, so they started on. Uh, wants to be a millionaire was one of the first. Peter Balzacet before sold Ready Steady Cook. Even though that became huge on the food network. So this, it was quite competitive, and, and American broadcasters, as they are now, started to be interested in importing IP that had had proof of concept as well. This show is working because it's structured to work, and that became important. But this principle was also important in Western Europe, where increasingly uh, broadcasters, you know, when you had opening up, deregulation, liberalization, more trade, and broadcasters increasingly wanted, wanted to build. I think the third or fourth interesting aspect of what happened in the 90s was very important, the formation of global market, uh, global content market, is the emergence of new genres, and it's primarily reality television, which is formidable. So you have, you know, you create a format, reality format, and you know, whether it's people on the beach, or in the huts, or in the house, and you will have format points, so you have good, you have a structure, and you can repeat the structure across territories, and I think the emergence of two, I think there was reality television, maybe with Big Brother, and the other one was maybe factual entertainment. Started with seeing people like with very British, uh, they started doing, um, you know, uh, shows in airports or train stations, and, and Stephen Lambert said, why don't we set the situation ourselves? And that became faking it, was among the first. So you set the situation, you're going to fake it, Pretend to be a sports coach, you know, pretend to be a, you know, a, uh, a violinist or what have you, and therefore, as that you set the situation, had a wife swap, super nanny, that became very very important, and which is in the noties, they were still selling a lot of game shows, but reality was I think the first or second genre traded 
in the business. So I think all the things, opening up of markets, opening of new markets, local broadcasters looking for content, more competition in uh, established markets like the UK, the US, uh, new genres coming, and as well uh, the, the emergence of the independent TV production sector as well. And within this, you had the, the emergence in the late 90s of production giants, the first two, one was Pearson TV, which was headed by Greg Dyke. In fact, Greg Dyke bought Fremantle in the States and sports uh, uh, game show producers and formed that what became Fremantle Media. And the other one was uh, Endemol, which was a merger, 1994 merger between uh, uh, John Demol and uh, Van den Ende, and that became Endemol. Uh, they, they had offices in several territories and starting producing formatting. I mean, you draw a distinction in, in the book around um, a couple of programs that you call kind of super formats. But before we talk about that, I'd just like to pick up on, on where you finished there about kind of, you know, going into other territories, having offices in other places. One of the things you say in the book in chapter four is actually that these flows aren't kind of brand new. They haven't kind of come out of nothing. They actually replicate a lot of existing trade channels. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about the kind of the continuities um, of the flow of TV formats. Yeah, if you, it's interesting. I mean, there is kind of a myth, you know, in, in some, you know, circles that, you know, culture is, is cosmopolitan. I mean, it is, you know, it's, but it's, you know, anything can come from every, everywhere and we, everything is transnational, food is transnational and, you know, the, everything flew in every direction. And the reality is not as exciting. You know, it's much more mundane. And in fact, if you look at WT, the World Trade Organization statistics, world trade is, is dominated by very few nations, the usual suspects, and China. There's a huge inequalities, world inequalities in world trade. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I would say 80%, I don't have the data now, so don't, I mean, 80% of world trade is four or five nations, the US, China, Germany, UK maybe, France maybe a bit low, and, and format, the format world is the same. Most formats around the world are uh, coming from from the UK, from the US, uh, still from Holland, Israel is emerging, Spain. So it's very, very unequal. So of course for me, I think that the, 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 the trade structure of the format world reproduces the power structure of world trade, which is very, very unequal. And for me, it's the definite, that was one of the things I've learned from how I was acting from from looking at formats, absolutely. I thought it was a bit more widespread and uh, equally spread, but it was not the case. And there's reasons for this dominance. We maybe I can talk about it later. But it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a feature of the format trade. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting because the chapter about super formats, you know, the kind of examples of who wants to be a millionaire, American or pop or whatever idols, Big Brother, Survivor. They're, you know, they clearly haven't come, you know, from kind of cosmopolitan out of, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of trans trans global flows. They do follow quite, a, you know, an obvious pattern of broadly speaking, kind of Western assumptions about yeah. television formats, you know, assumptions about um, audience relationships and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So um, it'd be interesting to hear about why you pick those as super formats and maybe you know what, why they're good examples. Yeah. I thought, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's always a judgment. I think the methodology it's subjective here. But the, the, 
formats are called super formats are Big Brother, uh, Wants to Be Millionaire, Survivor, and Idols. And all formats were era-defining, epoch-defining, very influential, and very successful. I give you an example with, with, with Big Brother, of course, the concept at the time was shocking for some people. And, but it's also the use, what was revolutionary about Big Brother was the not the use of cameras, but the use of not surveillance. I know a lot have been written about it, but from a more TV trade perspective, is a use of different platforms. And I mean, it would nearly crash the internet. I think in the UK, it was half the I think half the internet's traffic at the time was Big Brother. And I was so they were on multi-platform format. Uh, they were on terrestrial cable. And, and internet, you could also involve in the mobile phone, you could go to call. Wants to be a millionaire, the same story, a lot of features of millionaire have survived millionaire, notably the, uh, you know, all the, the ABCD, the, the answers, which it was the first time the answers were on screen, so broadcasters were very scared, but of course when everybody's going to win a million, the answer is there, and unfortunately had to convince David Lidiman that way things are a bit more complicated, why don't we play a new office? So that was now it's it's current it's a it's a currency of game show at a time that was revolutionary. But uh once being here was very commercial uh in, in scope as I made a fair bit of, of money with this and it was the first concept of format as franchise. And you had a, at one stage you had one hundred and forty product lines branded wants to be a millionaire. And if you buy if you adapt wants to be a millionaire, you have to take the music, you have to duplicate entirely the, the sets. And you, you have to take the logo and everything. You have little freedom, or no freedom at all. You just have to do your own question. But everything, even the, the dress, the, the, the dark tie and drive, everything is defined. So it's a very clearly defined brand. It was one of the first TV shows that was defined, approached as a brand. And Paul Smith was a you know, businessman, where he retained the ancillary rights. So it's, you know, it's a setup that's quite common now, but at the time it was revolutionary. The, the, the next one was, was Survivor. And I don't Big Brother, what they did very well, it's well, it's almost, I wouldn't say invent reality TV, because reality TV was invented before, but adapted and formatted. If you know what I mean, Survivor took many years to, to, to adapt, and it was the first format with Big Brother to have an elimination process. And this elimination process is probably one of the key inventions in, in recent history of television, whereby you have 15 contestants, and every week you engineer drama, you guarantee drama because one of them have to leave. So you can do it as you want, you organize the votes, you know, some semi-public, no public, all public, uh, nominations, you can do what you want, but just like the fact one person has to leave, engineer drama, you can have strategies building around this and makes uh, for exciting viewing. So that survival was also very uh, you know, was uh, key in, in, in developing this. And Idol, of course, it was, you had Popstar, so I don't, I'm a little bit unfair with Popstar, it was big, and there, there was a little bit of an issue between the, the distributor of Popstar, which I believe was Target Entertainment, and were a little bit bullied by Fremantle Media, I have to say, uh, but, you know, they, they agreed out of court. Popstar was, was kind of the kernel of Idols, it was a little bit long, it had huge success in Australia, I believe, and later in a few other territories. But Idols was really the juggernaut that redefined the, the, the first decade of, of television uh, with hugely successful adaptations 
in uh, in America, American Idol was the most important, was the leading TV show, the you know, most successful unscripted TV show ever on American television. I can't remember the date. I was quite impressed. The figures were quite impressive. And of course, from Idols, you have a lot of singing competitions with, from you know, X Factor and a few others as well. So that was a template. So Idols was very successful, distributed and produced sometimes by Fremantle Media. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was also, so all four formats have been extremely innovative, sometimes difficult to sell, sometimes shocking, but all is their own way of, were very, very, very innovative. And so, you know, a lot of people have taken things to this day, if you, you can see the influence, if you watch a new game show today, you can see the influence of who wants to be a millionaire. If you watch a, a talent competition, you always find the influence of idols as well in it. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's why I think it's super format. And people, a lot of people say in trade, in trade, in the market fairs, why, why are the new ones and why are the big format based? Yeah, I think you need you need the technology. You know, what's very important for the talent competitions is uh, digital editing suites where you don't you record things, you can store them on a computer. And if you see, if you find, if you need to find the first audition of contestant number eighty six thousand three hundred forty five, you can find this person. So it's it's it require huge computing storage power. I think this reality television relies a lot on this technology. In Big Brother, the same. The storage you're going to have is huge. And if you want to pick up the thread, the discussion, the dispute, and the, 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 the love interest, then you need to find this in your file. So it requires... I think the next new super format will apply a new technology. So, of course, a lot of people think of social media, but I think it hasn't happened yet. How do you integrate social media within the story? That's a difficult a difficult uh, thing to do. So I think it hasn't. But these four formats were era-defining. I think we're touching the end of this era. American Idol was cancelled. I think in this country, Dex Factor getting a bit tired. Got Talent's getting a bit tired. I mean, but they had super 10, 15 years. I mean, it's huge. And it's quite, quite big in steel markets. But we're touching the end of this time. But it has been, no one can deny, uh, I think collectively, uh, good talent is more than 60 territories, idol is more than 50 territories, and the other talent competitions as well. So they're still very important. And I mean, you talk as well about the impact on how national television industries themselves get transformed. You talk about, you know, the kind of three stages of, of upgrading yeah. um, a national television industry. And, and it's really interesting because it's not just the question of, what we see on screen having been transformed by these uh, super formats and being transformed by this this global trade, but actually the kind of uh, the systems of production get changed as well. So it'd be interesting to hear what the kind of yeah the kind of the stages of upgrade are and, yeah. and how Great Britain was really crucial in, yeah. in this. Yeah, I think Britain was a world leader. I'm, I'm not British, I can say, but it's absolutely <laughs> absolute world leader. Uh, two respects. If you speak to producers in China. In the Middle East, British producers really reorganized how TV shows are produced. You know, I mean, it's, you can't, it's, they had a way of doing it, and with the TV format, through it has completely changed. As people came with Got, Got Talent there, with MasterChef, and this is how you do a TV show. It has completely transformed local practices. And the locals are quite happy with it. So it sounds a bit brutal, it sounds a bit imperialistic, but I mean, the local industry, it is more efficient. So anyway, that's from there. In terms, you need to, why trade is is dominated by few nations? 
because you need local conditions to be able to export and trade, to perform well in trade, and it's the case in television as in any other industries. And in the case of television, what Britain has is A, they protects all segments in the value chain. If you look at most, in most territories, broadcasters are very powerful and can crush the interest of those small guys, which are the local TV production companies. I was speaking to someone from the Middle East there, and the problem, why you don't have Middle Eastern formats, because I interviewed producers in the Middle East, they have an idea, they say, if a local broadcaster see once, if we present to a local, produ- local broadcaster one of our ideas, they steal it. That's it. So they can't steal a master chef, but they can steal our little format. And that's the problem. It's not trade. It's not American imperialism. It's the fact that there's no respect locally for local intellectual property. It's not the case in the UK. I really have to say that the government, successive governments have legislated quite cleverly uh, the, the TV industry since the 1980s with the formation of Channel 4 against intense lobbying from ITV. Because you could buy, in the in, in, in late 70s, you could buy TV sets in the UK with ITV2 on the dime. So when the news, of, and you know, they wanted something more flexible, a commissioning broadcaster, so that launched and they had broadcasting quotas, and they had the very famous Terms of Trade, which you know about, in 2003, which says that broadcasters cannot acquire all the rights of a TV show. They can only get the one they need. And that was very important because the IP of these producers became assets they could sell abroad. So that's very important. So you need, when you legislate, you need to legislate for the entire uh, value chain, not only for the big guys. Now, if you only, in, in, in food, in the food chain, if you only listen to the supermarkets, you wouldn't have a farmer standing in this country in, not in five years, in five days. That would be it. There's no agriculture. You need to, you need to legislate for anti and in this country, they do it very well. Oh, I think you can even see this with the BBC white paper. I mean, not everybody is happy with it. Some people are okay with it, I think. I, I, don't, I think the BBC is not complaining too much. I know it from good sources. Uh, but the independent sector is very happy because it's opened up most of the BBC output to the independent sector. So from a BBC perspective, I think BBC played, I, you know, I've I defended the BBC, I submitted a paper to the BBC. It's, it's very important to have a strong public service broadcaster, which is one of the best broadcasters in the world. But from the independent, it's quite interesting. It's quite, I think, that it will bring new opportunities for the independent sector. So that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, so that's one thing is important, is protect the little guys and protect the local intellectual property. Don't let the big guys, don't let the supermarkets or television crush the farmers. That's number three. Number two is also the diversity of the, the British ecosystem. And it's a wonderful, uh, it's wonderfully set up with different income streams. So you've got public service broadcasters who make money out of advertising. You've got pay television. Uh, you've got public service broadcasting, you've got com- cl- classic commercial broadcasters, and all these business models are fantastic, and they should be cherished and supported, and uh, so that made a huge contribution to, to the format. You also need broadcasters who are almost paid to take risks. 
that's the case of Channel 4, who commissioned a lot of new shows, more new shows than anybody else. Of course, uh, I think the privatization of Channel 4 would be a big mistake. It looks like the government has kind of understood this. Uh, and the BBC, I would support the BBC, the license fee of strong BBC is good for for in independent production sector and good for the viewers as well. And we need, you know, a, a strong commissioning institution that you know is is there. So all this this diversity of 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 uh, the British system is good. It's competitive, but diverse. And if it's only competitive, it comes the states and you get a certain kind of television. If it's too, you know, too public, then it gets a bit stale as well. So I think the UK is just in the middle and does very well out of this. And number three, I think now it might be a bit controversial, but you need to be involved in trade. You know, you learn a lot. If I've done interviews in the Middle East now in Africa, and they love adapting Western formats because they learn a lot of skills. But the problem is then the local broadcasters who do not respect local ideas. But you can't accuse the West. You can't accuse Britain of the States. You know, you, you need to speak to local broadcasters who are often very powerful politically and local politicians will do nothing against local But You need to have the courage to say, well, you know what? I want to legislate for the entire value chain, not only you for the big guys. Because that's a problem in Europe. And that's a problem in many, many, many countries. So it's, it's, it's important that... Yeah, to have a diverse legislation that take account of all the interest, a diverse ecology, and to be involved in trade as well. You learn a lot from trade. It's really interesting, actually, because that, that's where the book concludes, actually. It's this question of the kind of the local and the global. Um, but before we get to that, um, the, the sort of the back end of the book is a discussion about how, uh, I think you used the phrase, how the format revolution has kind of come, come full circle. Uh, and I was really interested to know a bit more about that and, and, and why that is actually, why is it, you know, the this kind of idea of being at the end of an era or how we come full circle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, what I mean by this is that it's completed with the advent of scripted format, which came a bit later than uh, unscripted television. So we had game shows and reality. All this, I mean, for me, the key genres of reality for the format world are... Uh, Observational documentaries like Benefit Street, which is not <laughs> but you know, it's there. And I think five, six years ago, Benefit Street would not have been formatted because people said, Where's the format here? But now it is. Uh, the Real Housewives, as well, it started with Orange County, you know, it's just as well. It's light touch, you don't have clearly format points, it's character driven. Then you've got factual entertainment, such as Wife Swap, with a clear structure and a, pre- a precinct as well. Then you've got reality competition like Survivor or Big Brother, and then you got talent competition. So that, that was a big four. And after this came, I think, you know, scripts have always been adapted, even in the era of sound broadcasting in the 30s. But it's only later in the noughties, maybe mid noughties, that it became a big business in the format world and where TV series started to be uh, adapted. So uh, fully, and why I say it's full, full circle, we started with game shows at the bottom of the scale, and I interviewed game show producers and game sh- people who were selling game shows, and saying they told me, one of them told me it's like selling toilet brush. Really, <laughs> were introduced at the back door of the TV building. There is a class that I mentioned. So I introduced the back door of the TV building, so people were almost ashamed of dealing with the game show producers. And it's very difficult at an anthropological level to to interview them. When you interview people in drama, you know, it's all, you know, it's the interview never ends. 
But when you interview game show producers, you really have to, it's almost a police interview. You're, I can't remember, I don't know. It's, you know, they don't have this pride. It's a shame. So we started with game shows and then it went upscaling up to drama. And now, I mean, Homeland is, 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 is an Israeli drama and a lot of, you know, important drama are, are formatted today. So that's why what is full circles and an entire gamut of all the TV genres from the from the most mundane daytime uh, auction stuff to Saturday prime time is 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 formatted. That's why just why I meant by full circle. So now it's yeah, now it's just uh, yeah, the format trade is within is really part of television. Ten fifteen before wants to be a millionaire, you had TV executives never heard of a format. Yeah. It's really game show stuff, you know. It's a lot of snobbery about game shows. and not get near the genre, you know. And now it's it's everything can be formatted, including uh, a lot of British formats are tested. The scripted formats are a bit more difficult to to adapt. Of course, it's culturally more intense. You need a good writing team, a rewriting team. You need people who understand what they're doing, what the core of the format and how they can translate it. It's much more difficult to do it, and the success rate is less than in this game show variety. But nonetheless, uh, they exist. It's really interesting because that again returns us to how the book concludes, which is about perhaps the balance, perhaps the tension between the local and and the global. And you, you sort of make a case for the you know the um, the continued vitality of local culture. Um, and, and you mentioned this a couple of times in the face of, of a narrative that, you know, Pop Idol or American Idol or Big Brother is just a kind of a, you know, McDonaldization of, of television. So, yeah, I mean, what, what does what does the format trade tell us about the continued robustness of the local and the kind of um, the continued importance of the local? Yeah, I, th- I think difference is a good question. D- different scholars will tell you different stories. Mine is very positive. I, c- I can't, I can't see where the threat is because I think your format as as an ingredient. I think the analogy might be a bit daft, but I compare this to you know, <laughs> but you, you know, you, you got universal ingredients like rice, potatoes. There were local com- coffee was a local commodity. Now you got coffee everywhere. The rice the same, but bananas, apple. Oranges, you know, the way local product we became global commodities. But then comes cuisine, local cuisine. You've got hundred ways of cooking potatoes or rice or, or you know fruits. I think formats for me is a little bit the same. Then once you have your format, you can do what you want. If you come down with me, you're gonna, it's gonna be a local like a platform for local stories. You know, so you can, you can, it's yeah, it depends what you want out of of. of you know, local cultures. I mean, you can bemoan the fact that everybody is playing football to the same rules because there are different football rules. There are some people who play without boundaries. So I heard some tribes play football just in the forest. And that's fantastic. So it is maybe a loss of diversity. FIFA is a loss of diversity to stand. Nonetheless, you can say that when people in Chile or Argentina or Thailand, when they watch football, they support the local team. So it's kind of... Yeah, maybe a sweet bit, you know, it's, it's one football, one rule for everybody, which might be bad. It's a loss of diversity. But on the other hand, you can't, the locals do support the team. And with formatting, the same, you know, you watch local contestants. I think he did well. I mean, some, some languages may be a bit on the, on the threat. And if you have reality television, it makes those local cultures more vibrant. You know, if a big brother in Hungary and the small markets, 
where maybe the young people identify more with the local culture. I really think it's a platform for for local languages and local culture, and uh, I think it's a positive story. And then, if you're lucky, the locals can create their own formats, or even very close to this. I think it's, it, I think it's a format that helps local cultures be more relevant to to a young audience. And it's you know sometimes a lo- local culture can be a bit stale or a bit literary or a bit too wordy, and it's I think overall. For me, the format trade, it, it's, it's positive, you know, because you do what you want with the format. And so that's why I think the, 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 the conclusion of the book is quite positive. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Jean Chalabi about his new book, The Format Edge.